Our passage this morning is Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Uh, as you find that, whether in your own Bibles or in the Pew Bibles on page 801, let me remind you where we've been. God is speaking through the prophet Malachi to his people. They've come back from ag- exile, and yet it's not been a glorious return. The temple is not glorious as they thought. They've not been restored to political power and influence. And they're feeling pretty lacking in food and strength and resources. And God has reminded them when they are doubtful that He loves them. He's pointed that the issue is not their lack of resources, but their lack of worship. And so after rebuking the priests, He now turns to speak again to the people. Let's hear what God's Word has to say to God's people this morning. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer as we seek to attend to God's word together? God, we thank you for your word. The only rule for how we are to live our lives for you to know you, and hear the good news of gospel salvation. Lord, in these next few moments, by your Spirit, guide us in truth. Help me to speak your word to your people for their good. But all that falls short be quickly forgotten. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So we just read this passage, and after hearing it, and reading and following along, you might think that this morning we're going to be talking about marriage. And you have good reason for that. Two issues of marriage are addressed in this passage. The first is intermarriage, or the marriage of God's people to foreign wives. And the issue is not that they're foreign in the sense of they have a different ethnicity or nationality or or even race. It's that they worship other gods. They're described as daughters of foreign gods. And this is against God's command, and so this is addressed by Malachi. And then towards the end of the passage, the issue of divorce is addressed. God's people, particularly the men, are putting away their wives in divorce in a way that's contrary to the commandments of Scripture. 
But while marriage is at the center of what Malachi is addressing to the people of God, to us this morning, the passage is not so much about marriage, but marriage is the place where Israel's issues are put on display. For God's people are turning marriage into a commodity. That is something to take up and put down, something to consume for their own self-benefit and self-pleasure. They take up the wives that benefit them through intermarriage, whether or not it's in keeping with what God has said in Deuteronomy 7, and then they get rid of their spouses when it's no longer pleasing to them against what Deuteronomy 24 says. Why? Because they want the good life. They're seeking their satisfaction. They're seeking their well-being. In verse 13, as Malachi addresses the second thing, we have a clue to this. It says, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? They're, They're worshiping God. They're bringing their offerings. They're bringing their sacrifices. And their hope is that God benefits them, blesses them, favors them. That's what they want. They want blessing and benefit and favor. And so they've looked to their marriages, particularly when they're struggling, when their return from exile has not returned them to their former glory. When, despite the fact that Jerusalem used to be at the center of political and cultural influence, they are now a backwater still under foreign rule. Their resources are tight. There's been famine and there's not enough to go around. And so marriage is an opportunity for blessing. If I marry the right person with the right connections, maybe with a God who who maybe is on the rise, maybe there will be benefit to me. And when my wife no longer satisfies my needs or is too heavy a burden upon me, I will put her aside. They take up marriage and they put down marriage so long as it meets their goals and their needs. In modern conversations or debates that we've had in our own culture about marriage and sexuality, the conversation often goes, you know, what business is it of anyone or what business is it of the government what two consenting adults do in their bedroom? The thought is, my choice, my relationship, my marriage, it's about me. And maybe the other person that I'm involved with, it doesn't have any bearing on anyone else. And while God's people might not have used those same words, they believe the same thing. That they have seen their marriages and they have seen their disruption of marriage as something between them and their spouse, missing that all the while, while they are faithless to God's design and intent for marriage, That's leading them to be faithless to the community, to be faithless to God, to be faithless to the coming descendants, and in the end, faithless to themselves. The passage exposes the issue of living according to Polonius' advice to Laertes in Macbeth, to your own self be true. In being true to oneself and putting one's wants and needs first in marriage, God's people are being faithless to one another, faithless to God, to their future and to themselves. Now, in addressing this, Malachi strikes a slightly different posture. 
throughout the passage so far, it's been mainly God speaking to Israel. Got a lot of I to you. But notice the tone here. Malachi begins to speak with the people in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? It seems that in drawing close to them, he perhaps wants to better help them expose the issue that they're experiencing from within. And the first thing he addresses is this breakdown in the community as a result of their marriage practices. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? He speaks of one Father and one Creator, focusing on the one. We don't each have our own God. We don't each have our own Father. Yet we are acting as if we do. By choosing to worship various gods, we act as if there are various gods. To seek the favor of various gods is to seek the favor of various people that we think will meet our needs when we should remember that we have one God and one Father. And so their faithless actions are hurting the community. They're profaning, it says, the covenant of their fathers. One of the things that they forget is this relationship of blessing with God where God promises to be their God and they to be His people and to enjoy blessing in that isn't something that started with them. It's not something that God said, you know what, this this generation that just returned from exile, this is the covenant I'm making with them. No, they've inherited this covenant. These promises have existed long before them. Their enjoyment of the covenant has depended on the community that God shaped beforehand. And so as they seek to live within that covenant, their rejection of terms of that covenant, their rejection of certain laws and rules that God has, doesn't just impact themselves, it impacts the whole community. And there's some seriously strong language here. The language of profaning, that is making impure what is holy. There's the language of abomination, which in other parts of Scripture is used to describe idolatry and perverse sexual practice, even human sacrifice. What he's trying to do here is help God's people see that these quote-unquote individual choices threaten the whole community. In kind of two ways. First of all, by their testimony, they're rejecting the very basis of the covenant. Verse 10, as I said, describes this as the covenant of their fathers. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses gives instruction to God's people about how to live in covenant, he says this, You are to fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all His statutes and His commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Then it goes on to state that famous verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They're threatening the community because they are testifying to something opposite to the very central part of God's relationship with His people, that He is the one true God. But by being willing to marry those who worship other gods, they are entertaining the idea that there might be other options. That there isn't just one God and Father of all, but maybe that God is limited in time or place. That maybe there is some use for these other gods. And so he, they threaten the community with a lie. 
that God is not one. But in so doing, they threaten the community with judgment. By breaking covenant, they're inviting judgment. They profane the temple worship through their idolatry. Their profaning of the temple through such idolatry is as polluting to that worship as adultery is to the marriage bed. What they're doing is a mirror of what's happened before. God warns his people, when you go into the promised land, do not make covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Do not intermarry with them because you will be led to worship false gods. And then what do we read in the history of God's people? The very thing happened that God warned them against. They began intermarrying. The great wise king Solomon married many wives of foreign nations who worshiped foreign gods and began to lead him astray. And just as we talked about with the kids this morning, particularly Israel, they began to worship other gods. And what was the result? They were kicked out of the land into exile. So as the language of profanation, as the language of abomination is being raised here, they're saying, you guys are on the same path. You've just been restored. And now you would lead your own people into further judgment and discipline by your sin. Your actions in breaking the covenant of God's commands for marriage don't just impact you. They don't just impact your wife and your own lives. In seeking your own good, you are impacting the life of the community at large. Marriage is a gift of deep intimacy and partnership. It means that the influence of one's bride or one's husband has strong influence on the rest of our lives. And whether we are talking about marriage or close friend group, we need to consider is how we engage those friends engages the rest of the community that God has placed us within. We have the reminder in Scripture not to be unequally yoked. And if we are, by circumstances or choice, we need to be on guard lest we are led into faithlessness. Or we spend time with a group of people who have the most influence on our lives, who may not be telling us to worship other gods, who may not be calling us to worship Ashtoreth, but by saying that there are things as good, if not better, than the one true God. That what we should spend more time doing is making more money that true enjoyment and self-fulfillment will be in aspiring to that top job. Or in working hard so that we can play harder, that if we just plan the right vacation at the right time, then we will have fulfillment. Or that we need to spend less time with God's people. God has called us to be salt and light. But if we aren't salty, what good are we for the community in which God has placed us? And what detriment are we to the community of Christ that he's placed us in? The choices that the men and women are pursuing for themselves to their own selves being true is leading to consequences for the community. And of course, it's leading to, con to consequences with their relationship with God. It should go without saying, but no choice, no lifestyle, no pursuit is in isolation from God. He made the world. We are His. One Father, one Creator. And He cares for us and knows what is best for us. And yet so many of us are often trying to separate one part of our life or certain parts of our life from our life with God. Well, this is my marriage in this case. 
This is my romance. This is my opportunity to further my station in life. What does that have to do with God? And yet, the God life that God has made for us is inextricable from our life with God. Notice what verse 13 says. Draw your attention back to there. Verse 13, and the second thing that you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor. But you say, why does he not? The people are explicitly rejecting the covenant through their disobedience of the commands. And they wonder, God, why aren't you happy with us? Why aren't the crops doing better? Why aren't my kids behaving? Why isn't there more money in the bank account? God, come on, we're offering this worship, which, by the way, we've read earlier, is not proper worship because they're offering blind and lame animals that are unacceptable. But here they are, and they assume that this part of their life over here, which they are disobeying, should have no regards on how they worship God and experience God's presence. Why wasn't God responding in worship? Because they weren't being faithful. They're saying, God, why aren't you being faithful to respond to our worship in the way we deserve? And God's answer is because you are not being faithful to your bride. The fact is, you are suffering the consequences of your treatment of your wives in divorce. It says this, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The, the context that is being described here is that men are putting aside their women, not for any biblical grounds. There's nothing wrong with them, but they are choosing to reject them and divorce them. And God is saying, you have a covenant with them. And when you establish a covenant, it's the norm to have a witness. And the witness isn't just there to say, oh, there's a covenant. The witness is the one entitled to come after you when you break covenant. You might think of it this way. My best man at my wedding, uh, his name was Joseph, and Joseph and I had the discussion that, that he wasn't there just to prop me up. He was there to hear my wedding vows to Rebecca so that if a day came, I was not living up to those vows, that my expectation was he would be the first one to come knocking. Given that he's a former recon Marine, that might not have been the smartest thing for me to do, but he understood the job. And God's saying, my job is to bear witness that you are breaking covenant with your wife. You are suffering a broken relationship with me because of your broken relationship with her. To sever at will is to destroy what God had given, to diminish the gift of marriage that God had given, to reject the purpose of marriage that God had given in part to produce, as it says, godly children. To treat the wife of one's youth with selfish scorn is an affront to God that he will not ignore, let alone overlook, so that you can feel blessed and happy. Work, marriage, school, children, our creativity, our leisure, nothing exists apart from the truth that God gave that gift, that he gave it for a purpose and that purpose is to glorify Him. We can't use it for ourselves. We can't use it in our own ways without thought of God. This is the basic reality of sin. 
any sin against the created order, any sin against a fellow human being is by its definition a sin against God because we are misusing a gift that God has given us and in so doing disobeying God. So the faithlessness to marriage is hurting the community in that selfishness. It's hurting the relationship with God and it's also hurting their relationship to the future generations. Because marriage is set in the context of community, and part of what that community intent is for godly offspring. It's mentioned pretty briefly in the passage, but I don't want to pass it by. As Malachi addresses in passing the mystical wonder of the two becoming one in marriage, he addresses in part the purpose. It tells us in verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. One of the reasons that God gives marriage is not just so that Adam and Eve, that man and woman can gaze into each other's eyes and feel deep romantic feelings, but God created it for a purpose that they would multiply and be blessed and extend the image of God throughout the world. And so as this marriage is being broken and torn apart, as marriage is being pursued with those who don't worship God, one of the purposes of marriage in creating future descendants who receive the blessing of the covenant, who continue the blessing of the covenant, is cut off. There's two aspects of that. First of all, that that part of what marriage is for is for offspring. It's not just for ourselves. Marriage is in part for producing godly offspring. This is part of the creation mandate. And so when marriage is reduced to self-satisfaction in our day and age, it leads to children as an optional add-on. To take up or put aside only to the extent that they fit in our picture of what the good life would be. God says we can't separate the gift and intent of marriage for God's purpose to in part use marriage to produce offspring, but also to be godly offspring. The raising of children in idolatry is the alternative that is listed here. That if they're setting aside the wives of their youth, fellow covenant keepers, to take up instead those who worship other gods, that they are then raising up children not to live for God, not children whom they explain God's covenant love and promises to, but raising up children of other gods. To rend the marriage is to disregard God's right application of law. It doesn't just injure the other spouse, but the future of godly children. The Bible foretells what modern social and psychological studies say, that divorce is destructive to the flourishing of our children. It's not just about us. And even when we try to make it just about us, I'm doing this for me, for my self-fulfillment. It inadvertently hurts others. It hurts our relationship with God. It hurts the children that we are called to raise ourselves, or if we're not in the position of being parents, those that we are called to help raise in raising up the next generation. Our lives are not just for ourselves, but for those we are called to raise up and point to God, whether our own children or those within the community. But the last thing that we see is in these choices with regard to marriage, where these men and women are living for themselves, is that in living for themselves, they're actually being faithless to themselves. It's not just others, it's not just their relationship with God that is harmed, but it's them. Now you might ask, am I leaving out the spouse? 
What about these wives that are being jilted, divorced, and sent out to care for themselves? I don't think I'm leaving them out because how does God view marriage here? He views it as the two becoming one. Not just in the flesh, but it speaks of a way in which the spirit even is engaged in this particular union. And so the result of divorce is described as violence. S- says this, cursed, uh, wrong passage. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. That you cannot be faithless to your spouse without smearing the blood of the cut-up flesh upon you. It is a grisly picture. It's intended to be grisly. It's intended to catch the attention of the audience because to them, this is just a contract. And when I'm no longer satisfied with the terms of the contract, when the person on the other side of the dinner table no longer fulfills my needs in my way, then I just set them aside. God, through his appointed witness, says, you are not nullifying a contract. You are ending a life. You are separating what was meant to be together. And in so doing, you're not only harming the spouse, you are making yourself into a violent person who bears the marks of that violence. The rending of the one flesh is a violent act, and it harms the other removing the woman from protection and provision and placing yourselves under that judgment. Now I want to note one thing. If you've read this passage or familiar with this passage in other translations, you might perhaps remember that at least in the KJV, it says here that God hates divorce. That's one translation. There's some convoluted Hebrew here with a lot of words missing that the the audience is supposed to supply. And while I disagree with the KJV stance, I think the reality of God's stance towards divorce here is, is clear, that God doesn't like it. But, but sometimes that passage or that translation has been used to bludgeon men or women who have been divorced or are seeking divorce to shame them, to say, how dare you get a divorce? God hates divorce. But the thing that God hates is not divorce in and of itself. What God hates is the rending of the one flesh union. So that God would hate divorce if there is no grounds for it. He would hate just as much as he would hate the adultery or the abuse and the attack on the flesh of the spouse. God hates violence against the one flesh union. So as the passage ends, Malachi says, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless lest you keep doing this. Actually, verse 16 is not the first time he says it. Verse 15, just a few moments earlier in the passage, it also says, watch over your spirit and do not be faithless. Let me ask you this. If you were getting ready to go to work in the morning, to your job at the bank, and your spouse says, I love you, honey. Have a good day. Don't steal from the bank. Enjoy your drive. Don't steal from the bank. Or you're getting ready for school and your parents say, Have a good day, honey. Don't cheat on your test. I love you. Don't cheat on your test. You're going to begin to wonder, does my spouse think I'm going to steal? Do my parents think I'm going to cheat on the test? 
As Malachi gives this warning to the people and they hear him say, watch over in your spirit and do not be faithless, they are supposed to hear that. They are supposed to hear that you are tempted to be faithless. In fact, five times in the six verses, God's people are called faithless. Or they are warned against faithlessness. This reveals the problem of seeking to live our lives for ourselves, to our own selves being true. Because for a moment, if we could disconnect ourselves from everyone else like we want to in the world, we don't like the problems in the world, and so we disconnect, we stay at home in our nice, warm, and air-conditioned homes so we don't have to deal with other people. We can call instead of being face-to-face. We try to live isolated. And let's just say that we could. Let's just say we could live our lives just for ourselves. Here's the bad news. The self that we are living for is faithless. You set the goals. I'm going to live for my dream. I'm going to live for my wealth. I'm going to live for my fame. I'm going to live for my sense of who I am and what I want to be. That self that we are living for is faithless. If you have any doubt about that, let's talk in a few months after our New Year's resolutions are made and see how we're doing. This is why the gospel is such good news. This is what Malachi is preparing God's people for because as he points to their faithlessness in their marriages, in their worship, in their community, in their devotion to God, he is preparing them for good news, not that, hey, you're going to fix it. Hey, you're finally going to get it all together. He's preparing them for the news that's going to come in the rest of Malachi that God is coming to fix it. And this is the good news that we celebrate this Reformation Sunday. That when the worship of God's people began to be polluted, that when God's people said, I'm saved because I believe in Jesus and I'm a good person that does the right things, that remembers to confess all my sins, what began to happen is that the hope of salvation was put in their faithfulness and their ability to do the right things. And the reformers who read God's word Luther and those who came after and those who preceded them say, if our hope is in our faithfulness and our obedience and our trustworthiness, we're in a lot of trouble. But then they came to Scripture where it says, for by grace alone you are saved. It is the gift of a faithful God so that by faith, in your faithfulness, know in what God has done for you in Christ you find salvation. So that you can live for yourself? No, so that you can live for the glory of God alone. So that you can live according to the whims of man, to what you desire? No, according to what God's word says is for your good. The Reformation recalibrated God's people when they were wandering into the belief that we will be blessed if we seek our good, if we are good enough, then God will be happy. But to say your faithfulness is not your hope. God's faithfulness is something you can count on. Instead of asking this morning, what do I want? Or what can I do to achieve it? Or how can I be better? Instead, I encourage you to ask, in light of my faithlessness, to my spouse, to my own dreams, to my neighbor, to my job, how has God been faithful? And there is good news. 
Because Jesus has kept the law. Jesus has been faithful to his bride. And Jesus is faithful to his promise that he is coming again to redeem all those whose faith is in him. The bad news, brothers and sisters, we're faithless. The good news is that we worship a faithful God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank for how it exposes us, but in that exposure, how it drives us to you. That the only hope of Israel was not the other gods, was not in perfect marriages, but in you. So this morning, oh Lord, we come afresh to you. That in Christ we would find our salvation. In your word, we would find our guidance. In your plans, we would find our purpose. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.